Amen. Please be seated. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We return this morning to our study of Luke's gospel. And just to give you a, a heads up on where we're going in the coming weeks, we took an aside last week as it was Reformation Sunday to, to pause and consider the issue of the gospel and the Reformation. Oh, there it goes. There it goes. All right. Perfect time to... And in, in the attempt on my part to, to time Luke chapter 2, the well-known passage, last year's Commander's Challenge memorization passage of the birth of Jesus, to time that with the weeks immediately preceding Christmas, um, these, these pauses were necessary. Last week's, well, in two weeks, we're going to do another pause um, to set that timing up. We're going to study the birth of John the Baptist this week. Next week, Zechariah's prophecy in response. And then we're going to take two weeks, right at Thanksgiving time, to, to talk about and to study a Christian understanding of work and vocation, a theology of work, and the following week, a theology of rest. I mean, is it ever okay for Christians to watch a movie, read a book? I mean, there are, there are people perishing out there. If I was really godly, would I ever pause? Would I ever rest? Well, we're going to try to work through that. The answer is yes. Yes. But... This week and next week, we're going to look at the, we're going to finish Luke chapter 1. Just think about that. Through in eight weeks, we'll have got through an entire chapter. An 80-verse chapter. So we're on pace, 10 verses a week. We're on pace. We're on pace. Anyway, let's read our text this morning. The birth of the Baptist. Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 66. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to the father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And they asked, and he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he spoke, blessing God. And fear came upon all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard of them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? The hand of the Lord was on him. If you want to rethink where we've come, remember Luke's gospel, the first two chapters are a tightly structured order of the announcements, the birth, and the praise over two Boys, two children. And Gabriel first appears to Zechariah in the temple. He's come before the Lord. Announces to him in chapter 1, verse 13. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You should call his name John. And this is a miraculous birth because we're told in verse 7 that they had no children because Elizabeth was barren. And both were advanced in years. This is a post-metapausal woman, probably in her 60s. This is a miraculous birth. And then 
that the story pauses. We get the story of, of the angel and Zechariah, the priest, and he doesn't finish that story. He then goes to Gabriel appearing to Mary. These, these two births and these two birth announcements are put in tandem. They complement each other, just as John the Baptist's ministry was a complement and a preparation for Jesus. We see Gabriel appear to Mary and, and speak to her. And then the two mothers come together. And now, we, we ended last week after, well not last week, sorry, two weeks ago, after Mary's song of praise, Mary remained with Elizabeth about three months and returned home. That is to say, she remained for the remainder of Elizabeth's pregnancy and then leaves. So Mary is now left and the camera, the focus, returns to Elizabeth and Zechariah's family and the birth of this promised child. And this birth narrative is going to follow a pattern that will be repeated in chapter 2. We first hear the accounts of the birth of the child, which leads to a community of praise. People show up to rejoice, which then leads to a prophetic oracle by a priest at the time of Zechariah, of, uh, of John's circumcision. In the same way, in Luke, we have the account of the birth, and then shepherds and angels gather to praise the child. Then Luke's point, Jesus is greater. He has an angelic host. But in both instances, the community begins to be aware of what's going on in their celebration. And then, when Jesus is presented in the temple, Simeon, a Levite, prophesies and praises. There's a, there's a benediction and a praise that follows. Look at the end of chapter one. There's this capping statement on John the Baptist, verse 80. The child grew and became strong in spirit. He was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is the end of the birth narrative of John the Baptist. When we next see him, he will be in full-fledged ministry. In the same way, look at chapter two, verse 40. And then we'll look at verse 52. There are these capping statements of the birth and childhood narratives of Jesus. And the child grew, verse 40, and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with man. Now Luke's making it clear. Jesus' birth is greater. It is a marvelous miracle when, a, when an old barren woman begets a child. It reminds us of Abraham and, and Sarah. And it's an even greater miracle when a virgin gives birth. It's wonderful when the community gathers to celebrate. It's even more marvelous. It's even greater when a host of angels cannot be silent, but, a, but appears in the night sky to shepherds praising God. And both children, as, as they are prophets of God, Jesus is not only a prophet, but he is a prophet, like Moses raised up are given these birth accounts by Luke to establish the credibility of their claims of office. Um, Theophilus and we are supposed to understand this is following established biblical patterns. And this didn't appear out of nowhere. In both instances, there are many witnesses who could attest to these things. So now, seeing sort of the parallel structure, this is the first of two parallel birth accounts that our, our text breaks neatly, I think, into three chunks. First, there's the account of the miraculous birth in verses 57 to 58. Then, probably the center and the largest part of this text is the the, um, controversy over the naming of the child. We see the child receives an unprecedented name. 
And many, many commentators and many people preaching and teaching through this passage combine this birth narrative with Zechariah's prophecy. I chose not to because Luke pauses. We'll, we'll see in verse 64 that as soon as Zechariah's tongue is opened, he begins to bless God. It's a Greek imperfect verb. He was, he continued, he was continually blessing God. We're going to see that blessing starting in verse 67. And the chapter will end with Zechariah filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesying, blessing God. So Luke lets us know that that's happening. But before we go there, the camera, as it were, the screenplay moves not to Zechariah, but to the broadening community. And we end with an awestruck community. We, we get told the results of these happenings in verse 65 through 66. So if, if Luke wants to pause before moving on, to what Zechariah actually said, blessing God, I thought it made sense for us to pause and just contemplate the implications of this. And next week, we can spend our full time studying Zechariah's rich prophecy where he ties together the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenants. He has actually probably more to say about Jesus than he does about his own son. So with that introduction, let's, let's dive in first with the miraculous birth, verses 57 and 58. And the time came for Elizabeth to give birth she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Now, if you remember, Elizabeth had hid herself away um, when she first became pregnant. She didn't go out publicly and announce that, but she hid herself away. And so the community may at this point have gotten some word of this, but when they hear that she's given birth, they gather together. Childbirths are communal events, far more so then than they are now. Now, the sort of the family goes away and you have to wait permission to, to sort of come. And you sort of call, hey, is it okay if we stop by? And, that, and that's cool. But here, the whole community comes together and celebrates. God has given Elizabeth a son. I mean, just don't, don't pause over that. One of the great things of our God is he is constantly working 10,000 things, and we see one or two of them. Now, of course, the major overarching thing that God is working, he's, he is bringing his long-promised salvation into effect. The promise started back to the woman that your seed will crush the seed of the serpent. That promise, that covenant to Abraham is finally being fulfilled. He's coming. The Lord of hosts is coming. Jesus is coming. That's, of course, the great theme of this section. But don't miss the other themes. God can do that great overarching work of salvation, and God can order the movement of stars and hurdle our little spirit, Mach 80, through the universe, and magnify his mercy to an old lady, giving her the desire of her heart. Now, that's what's awesome about our God. He can do great things, and he can do great small things. God can orchestrate the universe, and God can hear you in my prayer. And Elizabeth, Elizabeth, she and her husband had long been praying for a son, and God, in, in, these, in the activities, is accomplishing his great plan of salvation, but he's also giving this old woman, who probably has long given up hope, Desires of her hearts, her heart, sorry. When she first learned of her pregnancy, she said, the Lord has done for me in these days. He has looked upon me to take away my reproach among the people. And so just, just pause and remember that just because you've been asking for something, just because you've been persistent, just because the Lord up to now has said no, 
Jesus reminds us to be the persistent widow, to, to continually bring our desires before God and ask God, either change my heart, either change my desires, or would you give me this thing that, that seems good to me, that seems like a blessing to me, and, and trust in God. God gives her a son, and a special son at that. And you can just picture this old woman cradling this newborn baby in her arms. She never thought she'd see. And, and what happens is the community gathers together to rejoice with her. And there's, there's two big themes in this text. The, the first and most obvious is the theme of Zechariah's restoration, going from doubt to faith, going from a tongue expressing doubt to a tongue blessing God. That's the centerpiece. The other big movement is, is the community. Up to now, Mary knows, and she immediately gets up and leaves, so word doesn't get out there. And the people at the temple in Jerusalem knew something happened with Zechariah. He'd had some encounter, but he's mute. Elizabeth hides herself away. There are not many people who know something's afoot, something's going on. And what we're going to see is these neighbors and family in verse 58 begin with joy. Verse 63, that moves to wonder. Verse 65, fear awestruck fear falls over them and then it spreads even further to the entire hill country of Judea. Words getting out. God's plan of salvation has begun and people move from joy to awe to wonder to anticipation. That, that's, that's the other big theme that don't miss that is, is how this starts with this woman, spreads to her community, and all this gets down to the hill country as the people are waiting. Who will he be? What's going on? Remember, God has been silent now for 400 years since Malachi. Silent, no prophets from God. No miracles. And now something great is afoot. And what starts with, with joy will grow to awe and wonder. Miraculous birth. Elizabeth bears a son. Now, presumably Mary has already left. Certainly by the point of this text, we're to understand Mary has left. And what happens then is that word spreads to her neighbors and relatives. Word gets out. The community comes together. They want to celebrate with her. They want to rejoice. This is a marvelous thing. Now, they may not know the fullness of what's going on. In fact, we see in the text that they are going to learn more and more and more of what's going on as their joy deepens to wonder and awe. But they just know initially, old Elizabeth, barren Elizabeth, has a child. She has a boy. And they gather to rejoice with her. Word spreads to her neighbors and her relatives. Now, what's interesting is, if you remember, two weeks ago when we talked about Mary's song of praise, it's often called the Magnificat, because in the Latin, that, that opening verb, to magnify, is translated in the Latin as Magnificat. Mary says, my soul is magnifying God. Well, that's the exact same word here. Just as God was magnifying his power and his his mercy and grace to Mary, Luke wants us to see that in this birth, what are the neighbors here specifically? Literally, and you can fill in your blank, they heard that the Lord has been magnifying his mercy. The Lord has been magnifying his mercy. And, and, and so there's this theme, again, of this thing spreading, getting bigger, going out. What starts with two families, three people, is now broadening out. God is magnifying. And again, remember, there's two ways to conceive of magnifying something. There's the way a microscope magnifies and there's the way a telescope magnifies. 
When God's grace and mercy is magnified, it's not something small is made to look big, rather something ginormous that can be obscured from our eyes is shown to be more like what it is. That's why a telescope magnifies. We look at planets and stars that would dwarf us, and because of the weakness of our eyes and because of the atmosphere, they look small to us, and the telescope says, here, here's a little bit more what it actually looks like, and it's magnified. And that's what God is doing. He was magnifying his mercy to this old woman, an old man. He was magnifying his mercy, not just to them though, but as we read through the book, Luke wants us to understand, in sending this son, he's magnifying his grace and mercy to all of us. The Lord has been magnifying his mercy, and that of course leads, they gather to rejoice with her. They gather to rejoice with her. Which is, by the way, exactly what the angel Gabriel had predicted. Turn, turn back to Luke 1. The other thing we're supposed to see here is just that Gabriel was dead on the money. Absolutely accurate. And the things he predicted came to pass. This is the mark of prophetic authenticity. Not vague general prophecies, specifics. Look at verse 14. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord." People prepared. Gabriel said, you will have joy. Many will rejoice at his birth. And look what happens. Many are gathering to rejoice at his birth. Just like Gabriel said. Just like Gabriel said. And just as we'll see in chapter 2, verse 10, many will rejoice even more so at the birth of Jesus. Just jumping ahead. The angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news and great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. So many rejoiced at John's birth, and we'll see in a few weeks even more so rejoicing for the birth of the Son of God. So we have the miraculous birth. The prediction came true. The old barren woman conceived. The child survived the pregnancy. He is born, and she's carrying him in his arms. And then the narrative jumps forward eight days to an unprecedented name, an unprecedented name. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called his name Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, Blessing God. So, Luke first gives us this, the setting, which is your blank here. It's circumcision on the eighth day. And that's exactly as the law prescribed in Genesis 17, verse 11 through 12. Um, the Lord tells Abraham, you shall circumcise in the flesh of your foreskin. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring. So, so in obedience, the child is circumcised. 
And one of the cool things is, I don't know if you ever stopped to wonder about why, why would God put the sign of the covenant there? Well, the promise of the covenant, linking all the way back to Eve, is that the seed of the woman would crush the seed, the, the seed of the serpent. And God tells Abraham, he's going to give him three things. He's going to give him a land, he's going to give him a blessing, but he's going to give him a seed. And so the, the covenant that God made is expecting a child, is expecting someone to come. And so it's quite fitting, the sign of the covenant is placed in an appropriately memorable place to link those things. So every time an Israelite circumcises a child in the eighth day, there's, there's this renewed expectation, there's this renewed rem- remembrance of God has promised to send a descendant, send a seed, who will crush the head of the serpent, who will bring true blessing. And it's, it's just cool reading this passage as they gather to do this, that is finally happening because they're, they're going to circumcise the one who is the forerunner, the one who is pointing, the one who is the big, giant, flashing neon sign pointing to Jesus. The Lord of glory is already in the world, in the womb of Mary. And as they gather once again to remember that covenant and those promises, God is actually fulfilling them in their presence on the eighth day. And they, they're kind of bold, they begin to name the child. In fact, the text says they were calling him. They just sort of assumed, of course, he'll be called Zechariah. So you can be, you can be thankful, your, your family and friends. We may have people make suggestions, but, but we don't generally have the family and friends calling them things. I mean, Daniel's decided that um, Barnabas will be called Bus, but aside from that. Um, <laughs> but, I, but I do know something of this experience of, of, of giving a name that, that gives people surprise. Um, I remember very vividly when we, when we uh, discovered that Abner was going to be a boy, and then we were settling on a name, and I called my mom to tell her, um, we've settled on a name, and she goes, oh, you know, she's all excited, my mom's British, okay, and she said, well, tell me what it is, and I said, um, we, we've settled on Abner, and there was a very long pause, <laughs> and then she said, um, might I ask what the also-rans were? <laughs> so when we came around for Zadok, we just told, there's, there's no debate. His name's Zadok. Deal with it. Um, so Elizabeth corrects them. They mean well. They mean well. And there is even some biblical precedent for this. If you, if you were, you, we don't need to go there, but in Ruth, when, when um, Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse, and the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi, and they called him Obed. He's the father of Jesse, the father of David. There is some precedent to the community having some input, and we can be thankful that that's one of those traditions that is past. Um, so it's not that these people are being bold or brash, they're just wrong. You've got to understand Elizabeth's response is not, how dare you try to name my kid? That, that apparently took place. It was something that could happen at the very least. What we've got to understand is her objection is not to the affront of these impudent and, and presumptuous neighbors and friends. Rather, it's the wrong name. Now, some people have thought that perhaps Elizabeth had some divine revelation. I don't, I don't think, how else could she know the name's supposed to be John? Well, we know a few verses later that Zechariah's got a writing tablet. These are literate priests, priest family. She grew up in a priest's household. These are literate people. 
A much simpler answer is just as Zechariah in a few verses is able to communicate to the people, I imagine over nine months, if, you know, he wouldn't be talking much, she'd want to know what happened. It seems most natural to me that he's communicated to her what Gabriel said to her, him, what Gabriel said to him. The child will be called John. You remember, go back to chapter 1. That's exactly what Gabriel said. Verse 13, the angel said to him, do not be afraid. Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. There it is. It's determined. The Lord God has picked the name of this kid. John, by the way, means the Lord has shown Grace, a fitting name for this old barren couple's son. But when Elizabeth pushes back, and she's pushing back in faith, no, no, that's not right. That's not what the angel said. No, his name will be called John. That's not good enough for the family. Um, maybe it's because she's, she's the wife and not the husband, but th- this can't be right. They say, you don't have any people in your family named John. And so they turn to the father. And they made signs to him inquiring what he should be called, which is one of the reasons why we think Zechariah was likely deaf and mute. The word um, in chapter 1 translated deaf can also mean both deaf and mute. The question being if, if he could hear, why are they signing to him? So it seems most likely that Zechariah was struck both deaf and dumb, which would stop the word getting out, so to speak. And they turned to him. Now, if you remember, the last time we saw Zechariah, he was a righteous man. He was a godly man. He was a good priest. But yet, when the angel told him the promise, he doubted. He had a lapse of faith. Understandable. But he gets rebuked. Let's just turn, turn to chapter 1. Let's just read that, because here we see the redemption and the resolution of that story. After the wonderful prediction by Gabriel of what this son of theirs would be and what ministry he would have and perform. Verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. So Zechariah, who is generally a good, righteous man of faith, we're told that at the beginning of the story, is a moment of weakness of faith. I mean, I think we can all relate to that. And the Lord God disciplines him. It's a, it's a mild discipline, but again, I was just spending some time thinking about this. I mean, I have a hard time if I can't talk for five minutes. Don't, don't say amen, Daniel. <laughs> I just want you to stop and think about, about not being able to speak, not being able to communicate to the people you love, not just for a day, not just for a week, but for nine plus months. Add in the likelihood that he's also deaf. It's a long time. And generally, when we fall under discipline, one of two things happen. This Proverbs talk about how a fool when he's disciplined, will stiffen his neck and become angry. The wise man receives correction. So there's two paths that could happen. Zechariah could begin to think to himself, you know, after the first week, second, third week pass by, I get it. I get it. 
Um, kind of making your point a little too much here, Lord. It's a little heavy-handed. I mean, he wouldn't be saying this, but this is the conversation he could have in his heart. And he begin to feel sorry for himself, maybe indignant, self-righteous. I mean, after all, he's been a righteous guy. He's, he's been obedient, Lord. I've served you all my life. I made one little, one little mess up, and I can't talk, and I can't hear for nine months. Come on. You could do that. That's, that's generally one way people respond to discipline. There's another way. Thankfully, that's not the way that Zechariah responded to discipline. He repented. He learned his lesson. He, he, he went from unbelief to faith. There's a, there's a wonderful, wonderful shift in the verbs. Notice what the mother says. Verse 60, he shall, he will, future tense, be called John. She's, she, she knows one thing. Gabriel said his name will be John, so I, don't, I, I don't, may not know many things. I know his name's going to be John. And they turn to the father, And he shifts from his name will be. Look what he says there. His name is John. In Greek, it's even emphatic, and you can fill your blank in here. After Elizabeth corrects the confused crowd, Zechariah confirms his son's name. Zechariah confirms his son's name. And literally, John is his name. The child already has a name. We're not deciding what to call him. It's already been decided. He's already been named. He's John. And likely, because especially if, if, if Zechariah is indeed deaf, the crowd marvels because he confirms, he, he reiterates exactly what Elizabeth had just said. Zechariah acts in faith. He doesn't doubt. He doesn't waver. No, it's settled. His name is John. And just, just pause and notice that his act of obedience and faith brings restoration. You know, not all of our suffering, not all of our pain is a result of God's discipline. But we do know from Hebrews 12 that if we are his children, the Lord disciplines those he loves. And so from time to time, the Lord will discipline us because of our disobedience, because of our unbelief. And again and again in Scripture, the pattern is when we learn our lesson, when we repent, when we change, the the discipline comes off. David speaks of that in Psalm 32. While he had killed a man and hidden it. The Lord's hand, he says, was heavy upon me. I, my bones and my flesh wasted away. Then he says, I confessed it. You took away my guilt and you, you lifted your hand from me. And you know, Maybe you're here today and, and you're feeling God's discipline on you and you're feeling God's hand upon you. First off, it's a sign of his love. I had the opportunity last week, I had a long day, I got to preach, teach here, I got to go to another church, Redeemer, and teach there, and I was coming home feeling pretty pleased with myself and the Lord, because he loves me, took a moment to show me some of my sin. And it's not always fun, but man, I feel love, I know, I know dad loves me, because he's working on me, he's dealing with me, I get much more nervous when, when, I, when God's discipline or God's correction has, I deserve it and it hasn't come. And... Yet when we learn, when we repent, when we turn, the pattern again and again in Scripture is restoration comes. And it's, and it's a marvelous transition. Remember, the very last words his tongue ever spoke nine months ago were what? Words of doubt, words of unbelief. And then what does the text say? Immediately his mouth is opened, and what's he immediately do? Bless God. And next week we're to look at that in, 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 in detail. His blessing. And again, the Greek's emphatic. He was blessed. He didn't stop. It just wasn't one little blessing. He's blessing God. He continued to bless God. And as the people see that, they, they're, they're, 
wondered. They wondered. He's restored. He's learned his lesson. So quickly, let's turn now to the awestruck community. That's where Luke pauses. And and notice again how God is doing 10,000 things at once. He's, he's, He's shepherding a faithful priest who had a moment of doubt. He's giving a barren woman the desire of her heart. But he's also getting word out there. He's also beginning the very ministry of John the Baptist. Remember, John the Baptist's ministry was to get the people ready to turn their hearts back to the Lord. What's the result of this unusual birth? Fear came upon all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts and saying, what then will this child be? The hand of the Lord is with him. So first we see fear falls upon all of their friends and neighbors. Now, when the Bible talks about this type of fear, it doesn't mean the terror that you might feel if, you're, if you know, a car swerves into your lane and is coming head on at you. It's not that type of fear. It's not the fear you, you feel when you think you hear a noise in your house after everyone's gone to sleep. It's not that type of fear. And the fear of the Lord, which I think what we're talking about here, is much more that sense of weight and seriousness. If you've ever looked over the edge of a tall building, if you've ever been to Niagara Falls, if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, you can be joking and chatting, but as you get up close to that edge, you're taking things seriously. Fair enough? And you just get this sense of, whoa. And you're filled with awe and fear. Not terror, but I I best not play around. (laughs) Fear fills them, that type of fear. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, taking God seriously. Because they go from simply, what a remarkable event, to they, they now get it, something's happening. This guy was struck deaf and dumb. Maybe they thought he had a stroke. And all of a sudden, he's talking and praising God. And this name, it's not in the family they, they get now, this is more than simply the Lord being gracious. This is the Lord is up to something. And they know it's been 400 years. And so they're excited. And the word spreads. Fear falls upon all the neighbors. And word spreads beyond simply the friends and the family now to the entire hill country of Judea, which would include Jerusalem. Word spreads. Fear came upon all the neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. It's, it's, it's constantly being discussed. It's, it'd be, if it was today, it'd be on the Twitter feed. Even the, head, even the front page of the news stories. Everyone's talking about this. God has got this people's attention. Well, and we know sometimes when, when, when something happens, it, it, it takes up the public discourse, and then a week later, it's gone. But no, we read, not only is everyone talking, word spreads, they laid these things up in their hearts which is a Lukean way of saying it went in deep and it stayed there. Twice more in Luke's gospel, Mary, these things will go into her heart. And biblically, the heart is your innermost being. It's the center of who you are. And so not only was everyone talking about these things, they didn't quickly forget them. They stayed, they resonated, they remained They meditated on them. It was on their minds. Not only has God got people's attention, he keeps people's attention. And all of this excitement and all of this this discussion begs and leads to one key question. What then will this child be? 
That's the very question. If you go to John, we won't go to John's gospel when they sent people down to John. Who are you? Are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? Are you the Christ? Who then will this child be? Wondered at this child. And this, of course, will set up John's prophetic ministry because John's going to hide himself away. The people aren't going to forget in 30 or so years later when he comes back on the scene eating locusts and wild honey, wearing camel skin. That's the kid. God is already preparing people to receive this prophet. God is already getting their attentions. Already their hearts are beginning to turn back to the Lord. Already on wonder spreading upon them. And he ends the section with the hand of the Lord was on John. Which is to say, God has equipped him and was working powerfully through him. God was already working powerfully through him. You remember Gabriel had described what John's purpose was. He will be great before the Lord, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he'll be go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Luke's point to us and to Theophilus is already that's happening. Already the people are beginning to get prepared. There's a, there's a secondary point as well, which is these are verifiable events. Theophilus would have lived at a time when some of these people were still alive. You, you could have gone and checked this out. You could have gone and verified this. And so as we approach the Advent season, just let us be encouraged. God keeps his word. God was up to something great. He is up to something great. Now you remember, you remember that all of this is leading up to the crescendo of this section, the birth of Jesus Christ, and then the gospel moves forward the ministry of the Christ. Now let's, let's have a word of prayer and then we'll begin to transition for our time of communion. Lord God, we just thank you for sending your son and sending the forerunner and, and doing it in such a way to, to, to inarguably, inescapably prove, demonstrate, verify, validate the ministry and the person of your son, the ministry and person of John the Baptist. And Lord, as we now turn our hearts and attentions to the work of your son, may we also be faithful to point and, and remind ourselves and, and declare the Lord's death. Amen. Now, John the Baptist came beforehand to point. There he is. There he is. There he is. This meal that we are about to partake of is us pointing as well, us serving that same function. Jesus said, Paul quoting him in 1 Corinthians 11, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. One of the things this meal is, and I'll, I'll, no, don't, don't come forward yet, man, we're gonna have a special music and then, then we'll do the communion service. So this is, this, Dave Lample has a song which I think will help prepare us to remember the Lord through the eating of this meal.